Okay, everybody, welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm your host, John O'Frew, and today I'm joined by a lot of you will know uh, this woman, Phyllis Titchenen, um, who is a fellow soil nerd. She's an eco-nutritionist, uh, and I just want to say welcome, Phyllis. Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, folks out there in Regen land. And Phyllis, what about what you do at the moment is getting you springing out of bed? What's really exciting you at the moment? Returning a bit to my roots, so to speak, on nutrition and the importance of clean, traditional, nutrient-dense food, not just in our health, but from the soil up. There, uh, We can go into this more, but the links between our responsibilities as farmers to grow healthy food and how that affects everything from the ground up that's happening, including especially our health. So yeah, those nutritional links. And um, the other thing that really excites me is uh, complexity and our embracing complexity, uncertainty, and um, just Coming to love the unknown, that gets me out of bed. <laughs> I'd love for you to paint a picture of a bit of an introduction of who was Phyllis Titchenen, and let's start to hear a bit of your journey right from back when you feel it's important to start. Okay, let's start when I'm four. I live in the Santa Clara Valley with my five siblings and my two slightly unusual parents, okay? It was slightly unusual in that rural community. So we're talking about the Santa Clara Valley in California, which was, we used to call it, and other people as well, the fruit bowl of the world. Ideal Mediterranean climate, 30 foot deep A horizons covered with some of the world's most productive and beautiful orchards. And my father, um, who was, an immigrant um, from Tsarist Russia at that stage, was an expert in deciduous fruits and nuts with University Extension in California. So from my small child's mind, all of those orchards that I used to drive past on our way to church were, were kind of my father's responsibility. He consulted to all of those orchardists. Those were his trees. And I remember very distinctly, we'd drive by one Sunday and they'd, it would just be an apricot orchard with these beautiful old trees and drive by the next Sunday and they'd all be bulldozed over and they'd be bowled over. And then the next Sunday um, they were doing the earthwork and laying the concrete and putting up these ticky tacky houses. I mean, all over. And it really, hit me because I identified with those trees. And even at that stage, I had this notion that something really precious was being, you know, massacred here. So I think that really had quite the impact on me um, at a very deep level. And it ended up with me going to an ag university, University of California at Davis, getting a degree in environmental management and planning and economics and mostly soil because I kept the back of my mind, I was always wondering, 
Well, those were such amazing soils. I mean, peaches, apricots, strawberries, peppers, prunes, amazing, amazing fruit um, and, and vegetables and all of that beautiful soil under concrete for decades. And I kept wondering, could we, could we revive that? Could we pull off all of that concrete in those houses and re-enliven those soils again? So uh, I now know the answer is yes, um, but it would take pulling, um, you know, Apple and Microsoft and Hewlett Packard and IBM and their spawn off of those soils because that's Silicon Valley now. It went from being Santa Clara to Silicon. So that was the beginning of my journey in soils and regenerative agriculture. And from there, I met a Kiwi who lived, born in Hawke's Bay and went to school in the South Island. Um, hooked up with him, came back um, after, well, I had a stint working as um, an environmental policy analyst in California state government in the Office of Appropriate Technology, the Resources Agency, and ultimately the governor's office on a variety of environmental topics. And then I, we moved to New Zealand and my husband got a job at Lincoln and I became a full-time mother. And then um, when the kids were more or less fledged, I went back into um, soils and ag consulting, thanks to very thorough inoculation um, by Arden Anderson in biological agriculture from around 2005 onwards. So consulted for five or six or seven years around the country and then took up Dr. Paul Detloff's veterinarian's request that I import his organically certified plant-based animal remedies to help the dairy industry um, wean themselves off their reliance on antibiotics and give the organic dairy industry that was just beginning to get off the ground some more tools in their tool chest for dealing with the range of animal health problems. And I've been doing that since 2011. Have you revisited where you grew up, where those trees were, Phyllis? I have, although I have to admit it's very disorienting because there are no longer any landmarks really that I can uh, recognize. And you'd have to drive around a lot to find any even remnant apricot or prune orchards there. It's almost all under houses. And what drove you, apart from obviously um, meeting a special someone, what drove you to stay in New Zealand? The climate, actually, when I push comes to shove, we're on exactly the same parallel here in Waipukurau as where I lived in California in a Mediterranean climate, the same distance from the ocean with more or less the same land shape. So there's something, it's like I'm in my terrain, you know, I found my terroir here in Hawke's Bay. Um, also because um, when I lived in Porongahau, I was fairly involved with the Maori community there. And um, it sort of became my 
Turanga Waiwai, if you will. Um, I feel connected here. I am uh, a citizen. And um, when I look, when I do travel to California, it's, you know, for the most part, one freeway nightmare after another. And I just can't identify with that anymore. And how do you feel as farmers in New Zealand? Because I get that you've impacted a lot of farmers. You've certainly impacted me and the people on this farm that we live on now. You were supporting those people way back over 10 years ago. What's your feel of the trajectory? Are we on a, are we on a, a path to health? I am optimistic. Absolutely. Um, I've seen enough awakenings, if you will, enough aha moments, um, enough paradigm shifts in farmers over the last 15 years that absolutely I am, I am optimistic and I am humbled by what many farmers are willing to take on um, the social pushback from neighbors um, and family, the risk that's involved when you, you know, you're not doing the normal thing, so you can't blame the weather um, or, or make excuses because you've stepped out of line, you stepped out of the normal read and apply um, pathway and you become more responsible for your own results. Um, that's been really encouraging and humbling. And as I had um, one fellow in Palmerston North, Jeff Williams, who was one of the first um, farmers I coached from a full-blown transition to, you know, 365 days, three times a day, milking super, super intensive, daring to something more biological and dragged into the Arden Anderson course. And that was where he confided later. It was where he heard the word paradigm for the first time. And he began to realize that we have mindsets that kind of influence, if not direct, what we're willing to see and willing to think. We're really quite blinkered in many ways. And he said, um, golly, fellas, you know, I didn't even know what the word paradigm meant. And now I see him everywhere. And it, you know, it changed his attitude towards food and what he should be eating and what he should be feeding his children and what he should be feeding his cows. So those sorts of paradigm shifts, it takes bravery. And farmers' bravery in New Zealand really inspires me. That is, that is very heartwarming to hear. And on the note of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that coach farmers in what happens on the farm. You have an interest in the connection between farm health and human health. Can you tell us a bit about what brought you to this conclusion of the connection or the similarities and describe for us some of the things you're seeing? Okay, well, this, let's go back to when I was four, just briefly. So it's not to exclude my mother from my paradigm-shifting childhood. Um, 
my mother was dedicated to good nutrition. There is a section of the population in the United States of women post-war who were really concerned about health. They, you know, they felt it was really important that children eat good food, that they get out in the sunlight, they run around a lot. And there was one particular woman, um, Adele Davis, who wrote books in the late 40s and early 50s that were quite popular called, you know, um, let's eat healthy food and um, food for healthy children or something like that, series of books. And my mother was hooked. So I'm pleased to say that she didn't buy into the whole 50s and 60s processed food, white bread, hostess Twinkies, Diet Coke, what have you. Um, so we had really strange lunches. Um, you know, we're a little embarrassed about the fact that we were eating homemade bread and um, we had a cow and drank raw milk and we didn't have any um, rainbow bread or, wait for it, ding-dongs, which is the name of, you know, cream-filled total crap kind of donut package that stayed on the shelf for months on end. Um, so I like to attribute my interest in nutrition and my ability to at least make the effort to think accurately, to research and to combine, to see connections between things to the fact that my brain was not poisoned um, from birth with a whole range of processed foods that most other children in California and parts of the United States were exposed to at that time. And I'm pleased to say that I have five siblings. Um, I'm right in the middle. So we kind of range from 68 to 78. We're all still alive and functioning. That's actually pretty unusual for people of my age raised in the situation and the time I was. So I have a fixation, if you will, about the linkages between clean, nutrient-dense food, people's ability to think, um, to be humane, um, and to take action in ways that are oriented towards helping them, themselves, their, their communities, their families, and society in general. In short, people who are doing, in my opinion, the most important job on the planet, which is raising nutrient-dense food, because that's what society is based on. That's, that's been the disconnect that was formed in human beings and their food and where it comes from and how it's grown. Like you say, the word clean. And I would say that not many people even know what that word means in reference to food. Mm. What I mean by it is that it does not have um, biocides applied to it, mm. either, you know, into the soil or directly onto the plant during growing or afterwards during processing um, or shipment. So food as it's meant to be from the ground, complex, long lasting, that actually delivers a whole range of 
digestive enzymes, complex minerals, and those factors that, that we call um, plant secondary metabolites, flavor profiles, quercetins, um, all about the whole range of flavonoids and phytochemicals that actually give the true nutritional punch to our food. And it turns out if you have unhealthy soils growing low bricks food that has um, herbicides, any of the sides on it, you are not going to have the same level and complexity of those absolutely crucial plant secondary metabolites, the things we actually eat food for. And it's not for the carbs, maybe for the, the protein and the fat, and I can get into the difference there and why one is more important than the other. But it's when we're eating plants, it's not because of the carbs, it's because of the tannins, of the um, phospholipids. It's those secondary, more complex molecules that plants really only make when they're well and completely nourished and have lots of sunlight to harvest. They don't have the energy and they don't have the building blocks to make those more complex, sophisticated, and for us, valuable molecules. That's why most broccoli or carrots, you cannot get a two-year-old to eat them because they really just taste like cardboard. And most of us have forgotten that, but they know. This is why you can grow the carrots and they'll sit there and munch them all day because they're sweet, they're flavorful, and they're something their body just says, wow, give me more of that, okay? That's the level of nutrient density. And I hate to break it to everybody, but there is simply no way you get those same flavors and demonstrable levels of vitamin and mineral if the plant has a bricks of low, less than about 10. There simply is not enough building blocks and energy in the system to boot it into that last phase of production. So we have flavorless, pest susceptible plants as a result. And this is why I bang on incessantly about carrying your fricking refractometer around with you because you know, either you train your taste buds to be your own refractometer or use this on your pasture, on your crops, um, or on the food you're eating. It's the best, cheapest, can't bust it, requires no battery way of, of assessing quickly, you know, how you're taking the pulse of your soil. How's it doing in terms of creating energy and creating nutrient-dense food. Is this the same importance for animals grazing these plants, Phyllis? The same sort of importance? Absolutely. It's the diversity that underpins the health and resilience and productivity of every ecosystem on the planet, whether it's subpolar to subtropical, everything, every ecosystem relies on its main underpinning for resilience and moving in the right 
in an ecological direction, it relies on diversity of organisms, diversity of species. Okay? It's, it's just a given, and what, that's why it's one of the key regenerative um, agriculture principles, maximize diversity. But absolutely, these same principles of concentrating energy and plant secondary metabolites, vitamins and minerals, as we go up the food chain from microbes and fungi, you know, through the plants, through the animals, and ultimately to the, um, you know, the carnivores, if you will, at the top of the, the ecosystem pyramid, the predators, us. So yes, the same things apply. This is why we need hybrid diverse pastures. Isn't ME the ultimate, <laughs> there's a bit of sarcasm here, but you know, I was brought up in my career as a farmer, educated through the, you know, conventional channels, ag ITO, which is now primary ITO. Yep. And, and there was no talk of bricks. It was all about ME. Mm -hmm. And they are similar. They're not exactly the same because BRICS is a direct reading from the substance with a very simple device you can use just about anywhere that you've got light, okay? Whereas ME is a partially algorithmic, if you will, data point. It's, a, it's not really a direct reading, it's um, send it to the lab and they'll put it through this process and they'll do some assessment and then they'll apply that to you know, a program and it will spit out a number for you. Now, early on, like in 2010, 2011, um, there was a guy, Graham Lynch in the Waikato who sold ag monitoring tools. And he kept, people kept calling him up and saying, you've got this, um, reflection thingy, um, I think the refractometer, it looks at that bricks. No, they're not that kind of bricks. It's spelled differently, right? And he would say, I don't know what these guys are talking about. So full credit to Graham, he got a refractometer and began to understand that they're used for measuring total dissolved solids. Um, so solids dissolved into a liquid in just about any substance that was liquid. We just use it for plant sap, but it's a common tool in laboratories around the world. You can test the bricks of any, or sugar in any solution, or you know, use it for um, testing urine, a whole series of things, okay. We just use it in agriculture for total dissolved plants, solids. And he went out to the field with several people gave them all the same instructions and said, test the, um, all do the BRICS readings the same and I'm gonna be in the same place and we're gonna take ME readings. And he came to the conclusion after sending the ME results away that they are, they measure pretty much the same thing. You will get similar sorts of indications. Higher ME does equate to higher BRICS. With regards to the animal, uh, and we haven't talked about nutrition in the sense of, we've talked a lot about eating vegetables. Where does meat play a role in a healthy diet for human beings? Because I know that there seems to be a lot of trending around animals being bad and animal fats being bad. And 
I was certainly brought up, you know, the fat-free movement. Um, carbs are the foundation of the, you know, the food pyramid. Uh, where are we at now with, with this kind of notion? Well, we're not, unfortunately, where we were when this whole thing of eating meat started um, several million years ago. Um, or where I think from an actual nutritional and health standpoint, standpoint, we ought to be. We've become fat phobic, okay? Um, we have been told that saturated animal fat, things like butter and egg yolks um, are bad for us because they're high in cholesterol and cholesterol causes heart disease and heart attacks. Um, that's one of the bigger whoppers in terms of false health narratives of the last 50 to 60 years, okay? Um, it's along the lines of we can't farm without chemicals and soil microbes really aren't important. You know, some key principles that are being missed here. For me, the bottom line is always I try to go back to the science, look for the science. And if I don't get an answer, I go with my gut. Um, so you got to be a blend of, you know, use whatever tools are available to you. But I try to think accurately about it and use the science all the time, asking the question, who paid for the research? Who has this researcher been paid by before? Because, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years in particular, we've had a real slide from independent public good science to what science. We have, um, we have indentured scientists who, unless they get the right results, will not get funding again. That's just the basis of it. So having said that, when I look at the science, um, couple of gross generalizations here. 98% of our biology or more, our genes, is identical to our Ice Age Paleolithic ancestors from you know, hundreds of thousands, if not some people say millions of years ago. So our, what we put into our bodies, our nutrition, our food, determines you know, what tissues we have, how our bodies respond. So we have to, to be fully healthy, we have to look back at what were we eating when our bodies became this form, when we had this size brain, these arms, you know, our whole digestive system, um, all our connections are going to be functioning best with the food we were eating then. That's what our systems are actually based on and compatible with, okay? Some people say you need to eat for your DNA. Well, our DNA is predominantly Paleolithic, okay? What, and what was available? What, what is Paleolithic? Can you Paleolithic. Paleolithic is the era of time. You know, we have the, we're calling ourselves now the Anthropocene. We're the era in geologic history that's being influenced by 
anthropos, anthropos, us. We're anthropomorphic. What we have the Paleolithic, we have the Carboniferous, we have all these various eras of past history on planet Earth. And the Paleolithic is relatively recent. And that's during the Paleolithic that our, um, the climate and what was available for us to eat at that time shaped the way our species currently is. Okay, so we're pretty much the same bodies and functions as we were in the Paleolithic. So that's why we talk about Paleolithic man or the Paleolithic diet, okay? I'm eating paleo. You're talking about going back to eating um, how our ancient ancestors ate that resulted in us being the way we are today, okay? Well, what where Paleolithic collides with the Big Bang into the standard nutritional recommendation to eat lots of vegetables, um, focus on carbs, reduce your red meat consumption, and eat next to no animal fat, okay? So headlong, big collision, because when we look back at what was available in the Paleolithic, you had mostly, this was the Ice Age, okay? The Ice Age and the Paleolithic are pretty much interchangeable. Well, it was very, very cold. We didn't have tropics for the most part. There were lots of ice sheets everywhere. And we had mostly mastodons, right? Big fat woolly mammoths, um, saber-toothed tigers, um, other furry animals like foxes and rabbits and things that could survive, you know, snowbound winters. We had in spring and summer, some very, uh, we had root vegetables and some leafy greens. We had next to no fruit except maybe berries and they were extremely sour in the autumn. Our main source of energy was saturated animal fat from marrow of bones and from the fat that kept the mastodons warm throughout the winter. So that's where the keto comes in because it turns out that our metabolisms evolved in their current form in the ice age to be fat burning, keto. We, ketones are the bodies, if you will, the molecules, complex molecules that our livers create as energy parcels, packets for the rest of fuel ourselves from fats that we eat and digest. Okay, so we eat fats, it goes to our liver, the liver creates ketones, and then the ketones go out and fuel our, our, our cells and our mitochondria, the furnaces in our cells. And that process of ketosis is actually a burning process. It involves oxygen, okay? So ketosis is an oxygen-based burning of fat molecules, so putting it really simply. And that's what's enabled us to be able to go for long periods of time without eating, to have stored fat, to have brains that draw 20% of our total you know, energy uses in our brains and our brains are fueled, yes, to a small extent by, by sugars, but mostly by fats. But most of us have never actually been consistently in ketosis because 
when we shifted from being hunters and gatherers coming out of the Paleolithic when the ice sheets melted, we shifted over to becoming civilized and cropping instead of just hunting and gathering. We became sedentary. We developed all of these grains to be able to feed concentrations of people and we developed cities for civilization. But that radically, that is a radical change in diet from being animal with a little bit of plant-based eating and in ketosis all the time to mostly carb-based and being in a sugar-based metabolism. Sugar-based metabolism is fermentation, doesn't use oxygen. And yet most of our systems are oxygen-based. So right there, we ran into a health problem because we shifted from fat-burning ketosis to carb-burning fermentation. A Nobel Peace Prize was given in the 1930s to Otto Warburg, who discovered and proved that cancer cells and tumors um, can only feed themselves through carbohydrates and fermentation. So right there, um, we set ourselves down the pathway of inflammation and increased cancers because more and more we've moved from our fat consumption of butter and egg yolks being wonderful things in you know the 1900s and, and early 19th or 20th century to you know, thinking that if you eat egg yolks, you're going to die of a heart attack. So we've had a big turnaround in the last 100 years um, in our what we value in our diet. At the same time, we've chucked a whole bunch more chemicals and biocides onto our soils and into our plants. And the result is a massive decline in our health. And I just want to say this and cut anybody off at the pockets. We are not living longer. That's a myth. It's just a meme. We are, I mean, I don't see how we can be living longer when childhood cancer is close to the major cause of death for children. So something is a myth. And I maintain it's the fact that we don't have clean, nutrient-dense plant-based foods, and we're not eating nearly enough vitamin A and D and K2-rich saturated animal fat. End of lesson. So many things are rushing through my mind right now. You know, diabetes, autoimmune, mm -hmm. and now I can see vividly this connection between the dis-ease or ill health of our land and of our people and how they are hand in hand and what's also there is we are seemingly being kept alive in agriculture and in human and livestock by treatments that treat the symptoms but don't create health mm -hmm. yeah like it's a big business yeah absolutely i remember Two, two things in particular stand out in my mind, um, you know, from early 2000s in Arden Anderson's um, lectures. I mean, and he was, he is pretty unique in terms of being a full-blown medical doctor and a full-blown 
soil scientists and consultants, okay? Not many people combine that. And he used to say, get agriculture right and everything else comes right. And I used to think, well, that's, it's a little up yourself, don't you think? That's a little broad statement. But the more I thought about it and understood that link between um, the nutrition in plants and treating the soil as a living complex microbe dominated um, or driven uh, system and the nutrient density and high bricks in our plants and our ability to grow chemical free plants once we get our microbes and soil and plants in balance. And the fact that everything about us, our intelligence, our moods, um, our muscle strength, our immune resilience, our resistance to allergies, as we went, diabetes, inflammation, the whole thing, absolutely directly related to the quality of what we eat. You can't have healthy tissue if you don't have the right building blocks. And those building blocks, you know, those plant um, carbohydrates, fats, proteins are all based on the health of the soil, the diversity of the microbes, and they all come back to the same regenerative ag principles, which are, not surprisingly enough, the very same principles of ecosystem function that they teach in Ecology 101, minimum disturbance, maximum diversity, uh, protection for the soil, armor your soil, keep living plants in whatever scene it is all the time and have some kind of animal input or impact. Same thing. So we have to follow those regenerative principles to be in sync with the ecosystems that we're functioning in and caring for and harvesting from. But those exact same principles um, apply to our health, which is why I say it's, it's regenerative health for farmers. We need to think about our health in terms of the same principles we're applying to nurturing our land for a healthy harvest. Minimum disturbance, no chemical toxins for us, no antibiotics, minimum scripts, minimum disturbances energetically, including electromagnetic frequencies that are non-native upsetting our systems and our metabolism. All of these things are cytotoxins. They're cell toxins. They're biocides, if you will, that kill cells and challenge and disrupt our body's function. Um, you know, we can't function if our organs like our liver um, are not functioning properly because we're not nourishing them or we're overloading them with toxins or we've taken antibiotics and we've upset our microbiome balance and our gut isn't functioning, isn't digesting, isn't protecting us because hey, 75 to 85% of our total immune function comes from our gut microbiome. So it needs to be healthy so we can be healthy. Um, microbes including and our gut microbiome affect our thoughts and our actions as well. They, they're, they're, you know, they're the ones in charge. They're the ones with their hands on the wheel. 
and we need to feed them properly and not poison them, just like we need to do the same thing with our soil microbes or it's gonna crash. <sighs> I take that all the way down the line, maximum diversity. We have to honor the ever-shifting balance of organisms on our skin, just the same way we have to honor the ever-shifting balance and diversity of microbes in the soil and on the plant surface. But we need to think about our gut, um, our organs, our skin, all of those are their own forms of interacting microbiomes. And it all needs to stay in dynamic balance. It's one thing, you know, there's no one way, but there's certainly a proper or a better direction. There's always going to be complexity and toing and froing, but we just need to understand that those transactions between organisms in any ecosystem, it's absolutely crucial to the functioning of the whole. And we are just one tiny part of that um, overall ecosystem, one organism out of gazillions. We're completely reliant on our organisms, not the other way around. And we need to honor and nurture them or they are gonna come back and as they have been doing for a while now, biting us in the bum, big time. We're only getting sicker. And so we need to maximize the diversity in our food and we can nourish more diverse microbes in our gut so we can have more resilient gut microbes just like we do with the soil. I went on a journey listening to you and the journey was walking down the supermarket aisle and I'm just like, there is so much stuff, very little of which is actually food. And, and so where does that leave us? Well, we have to get creative. Obviously we should definitely make some relationships with some farmers and get curious about, about that side of things. But then I found myself walking through a, um, you know, like agricultural supply chain shop. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar. All of this stuff, very little of which. And then you mentioned about skin and I very, you know, like the, the life on your skin. We, a lot of us, especially those listening to this podcast, probably be thinking about gut biome, skin as a biome. And then I started to think, my twin sister was, uh, when I was younger, throwing her under the bus here, uh, she had, you know, acne. I, I, I didn't have acne problems. Very different upbringing. I was on the farm from 11. She never did the farming thing. I never, yeah, so anyway. And I remembered ads on television promoting benzoyl peroxide to put on your face to kill acne-causing germs. And then I found myself on the paddock so the idea that acne is something that we need to eradicate and then i went straight out into the paddock weeds here's the solution put this chemical on oh my goodness these connections are everywhere yeah absolutely and we 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 tend to forget you know you can you can compare our skin and our the tube sort of that is our digestive tract from our mouth to our rear end um, with plant roots. It's like plant roots turned inside out. You know, we've got our 
root surface on our inside in our digestive tract. That's how we absorb our minerals with the help of the microbes, exactly like plants do, right? Yeah, that's why your poops are brown. That's why soil is brown. That's why humus is dark because it's 30 to 50% microbodies. All of those microbes in there around our inverted, if you will, turned inside out roots that are our digestive system. When we're healthy. When we're healthy, yes. Because we've all seen blue soil and we've all seen, you know, different colored excretions. Like you think of, you know, a, a cow, particularly dairy Dung, loaded yeah. up on protein. Yeah. It's definitely mm-hmm. not brown. That whole science of scatology looking at an organism's poop to determine you know what it's been eating and whether or not it's healthy they're absolutely the same thing with our with our soils but it's you know we we are all connected it's all part of the same system and you don't get away from the impact of poisoning microbes in in the soil it takes some time for them to recover you have to nurture them along the same thing is happening constantly with most of our people, you know, of our bodies. I mean, anybody who's had antibiotics, uh, taken birth control pills, had a prescription drug, um, or been exposed to a lot of pesticides in a variety of forms, will have a deranged um, bodily and gut microbiome. They, the, The organisms in our gut will be less in diversity and less in function than we need to be truly healthy. It, you know, those are they're just the parallels are just compelling. We're just like we need the microbes in the soil for our plants. We need the microbes in our in and on our bodies for our health as well. They're they're what digest our food. So they're really- what mediate our, our immune system. They're what help us to harvest sunlight literally on our on our skin just like they help microbes in the in the um, phylosphere to um, absorb nutrition from the air and to make those amazing um, you know photosynthesis conversions it's all microbial driven and with the help of plants yeah gotcha oh man two things came up there one and and you mentioned uh, the the link between physical health and gut health and and am i right in assuming that also mental health absolutely yeah that's been one of the bigger discoveries of the last 10 years or so is neurology and um just internal medicine acknowledging that holy heck there is a direct link a, a vagus nerve a major nerve system that goes from our small intestine up, you know, our chest, back behind our ears and, you know, into our brain. And that is how the excretions, if you will, or the signals from our gut microbes impact our thoughts and our mood. They're very clear about this now. And vice versa? Um, I would have to imagine in the overall reciprocity of the universe that yes, that probably happens too. 
I, I read that in um in Dr. Bruce Lipton's biology of belief. Mm -hmm. yep. Um but I just want to come back to this notion of us harvesting sunlight. We've mm -hmm. all heard that phrase, nothing like a bit of sun on the back, especially after a few cloudy days. And I know you guys yeah. up north have had plenty of those. So mm -hmm. it's not just a uh, sun thing. It's the, we are harvesting sunlight. We are, we photosynthesize. Plants are not the only ones, okay? It happens on several levels. But we're told to avoid the sun. Um, you're also told to avoid saturated animal fats. How's that working out? I've never been one to do what I'm told, Phyllis. So I'm, I think. Um, that's why I'm appealing to regenerative farmers, right? Just <laughs> don't buy into the narrative because follow the money. Hmm. Who benefits from the sale of, if we're frightened about skin cancers, who, who's making the money in this? It's the pharmaceutical companies. It's the sunscreen manufacturers. It's the people who who create the you know, machines for looking for melanoma. I mean, go on and on and on. But the, the bottom line is, we finally also discovered that vitamin D is super important for our immune system function. It's become more popular to you know, it hasn't been heresy for the last three or four years. Get out and get some sunlight. But um, yeah, I, I want to make clear that I'm not suggesting that if you don't already have a good tan, that you rush out there and stay out in the noonday sun for half an hour. Absolutely, you will burn. And if you burn badly enough, you will create tissue damage. And you, you could well get you know, various forms of at least superficial cancer. Okay? But the big narrative derailment is basically that we actually need sunlight to function through our eyes we need early morning red light um, to off the melatonin that has helped us sleep through the night and bootstrap various processes in our body we can literally turn photon sunlight energy into electrical electrochemical signals in our body that affect our digestive system, our immune system, our brain cells. Okay, so we're using sunlight to create signaling that drives our metabolism in our body. Okay, that's why it's important to get out in the early morning sun and watch the sunlight from your, you know, front steps in the evening. We need those frequencies of light for our full body function and health. We also use sunlight, and we're talking about midday sun here, which is when it happens, to create a couple of substances. We all know that we can create vitamin D on our skin, usually if we have enough fat in our diet, because fat molecules are part of what helps the process of photosynthesis on our skin. And we make the vitamin D in the presence of sunlight and some sulfur in the atmosphere to create vitamin D that then gets absorbed by our sun, our skin, and gets tooled around our body for a variety of things, including bone integrity. Okay. But in addition to vitamin D, we create cholesterol sulfate and, and also nitric oxide, two really important molecules for our body function. D, we make these things out of cholesterol, okay? It's the 
cholesterol, the fat molecules on our skin that enable us to make vitamin D. It's just a little tweak from cholesterol to vitamin D, very similar molecules. Same thing with cholesterol sulfate. So those are very important processes. Get out in the sun, don't burn, but get a protective tan all over your body. The nudists were right. Okay, I hate to break it to you. And then the other way that we photosynthesize or use sunlight is through the creation in our bodies from the infrared light coming from the sun, we create EZ water or EZ water. We create structured crystal lattice fourth phase water, which is the form water takes in biological systems. And this is important because it's what creates or allows electrical charge to happen in our bodies. And we are electrical systems. Ultimately, we have a negative charge at our feet and a positive charge at our heads. And we, we are a battery. And part of that is battery is solar fueled. We are collectors. And we need sunlight for creating vitamin D, for creating energy, um, and, and also for, we need sunlight through our eyes for all of those photoelectric biochemical conversions that happen. I mean, there was Nobel Peace Prize given for this bioelectric conversion of red light and, and blue light, um, turning on and off key hormones. Nobel Peace Prize given to three guys in 2017 for just this discovery. This is not woo-wah. This is, this is science. So sunlight, crucial, important. And final nail in the coffin, bad pun intended. Um, melanomas are not technically skin cancers. They are deep-seated metastasizing cancers from within the body seeking an outlet on the skin. Okay, they're not caused by exposure to sunlight. In, indeed, I've actually seen the, the original study asserting that it's exposure to sunlight and the creation of vitamin D that helps prevent cancers and specifically melanomas. So we've got it 180 degrees wrong. Melanomas, you know, they're not, you know, superficial cancers because, you know, when you come out of the operation for your melanoma, they'll say, we, we got as much as we could. We went down as far as we could. That's because the root, if you will, of that melanoma um, <clears throat> is in some portion of your body that already has a cancer. That's why most people from melan with full-on melanomas die so quickly because they already have cancer. And my, my reference for that, in addition to reading, is absolutely other doctors like Arden Anderson, adamant about it. Melanomas are not skin cancers. They're cancers that have developed already and are just seeking an outlet on the skin. That's why they grow so fast. That's why they kill so fast. And this is the same argument that it's not exactly necessarily the same 
function or or system, but why some doctors recommend not taking the tumor out, changing your diet to cut off the food supply to the tumor, stop, you know, turn off the tap, stop exposing yourself to the carcinogens that are causing or contributing to the cancer and shrinking or starving the tumor by going on a ketogenic diet and not giving it any carbohydrates to eat. So healing from the inside. Yes, by, as I said, changing your environment, changing the epigenetic or environmental contributors um, to ill health, in this case, biocides, chemicals, um, including the ag ones we use. You have to step away from that. Otherwise, you know, you've, you've taken the, you pulled the plug in the bathtub, but you haven't turned off the tap. So the bathtub's still gonna be full or there's still gonna be a lot of water in the bathtub. You gotta both turn off the tap and pull the plug. Not get a bigger sinkhole, a bigger- yeah. not, not get a bigger bathtub. That's not the answer. <laughs> wow. And, and so, so what you yeah. is like, a bit, a bit like the, the principal, um, you know, little or low or no disturbance is like, first do no harm. Like first- yeah, Exactly. Stop the bad thing. No amount of good things will over or outweigh the, yeah, you said it so beautifully that you've got to turn the tap off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, this, the same things apply to, you know, our soil ecosystem and our approach to regenerative farming. You know, we rely on those microbes. They, they are the driving force. Um, and almost all of our ag inputs, you know, in a conventional system are biocides. They kill cells. They kill the very same cells that our microbes have in their body, many of the microbes, not all of them, and that we have in our body, that the plants have in their bodies, that the animals have in their bodies. They're all biocides of um, you know, cells like ours that have a nucleus, that have a cell wall. That's pretty much everything except slime molds, um, including insects, have a cell wall and a nucleus. And they reproduce in similar ways, just as our cells do. So how can we think that putting these chemicals on the food, in the soil, on our animals, is not going to harm them and concentrate up the food chain and harm us as well. We have the same cell structure. Our cells react in the same way. They get poisoned. So turn off the tap. Step away from your computer. You know, just, I'm, I've, I've always wondered about this. You know, should I recommend to people that they back off the pile? the pesticides um, slowly, same thing with urea, or just go cold turkey, you know, depends on your risk profile and preferences. But ultimately, um, I've heard enough successful regenerative slash organic farmers say, just do the sums, 
get the extra hay, put the extra money in the bank, prepare yourself, learn as much as you can and go cold turkey. Otherwise you're just, you know, you're just extending the impact and potentially extending the time that it takes your system to fully recover and reach productivity. The same thing with our bodies. If you're serious about fighting cancer, stop drinking, because that's pure carbs. Um, stop eating processed food, because not only is it nutrient deficient, it's full of chemicals and excitotoxins and preservatives and lots of carbohydrates and no digestive enzymes. I mean, it's nutritionally, almost any processed food is pretty much, you're just getting the carbs. You're not getting anything else of value and carbs feed cancer. That's and how they, often brought up to eat wheat bix. Like, oh, it's a nutritional whole grain. And then we pile the sugar on. <laughs> feel great for about an hour. <laughs> low fat milk, you run out of, you run out of, uh, you know, fuel. And so, you know, you're into the next cup of coffee in the muffin. Um, a whole bunch of, you know, stimulants and carbs again. So, yeah. That's why my kids are hungry all the time. <laughs> exactly. Give them butter. Give them bacon. Give them eggs. You know, give them, you know, a lamb chop to chew on. Give them liver. Give them the soil. That's what our bodies need. They need nutrient-dense food, particularly organ meat. And for those of you who are home killing your own animals and putting animals, beasts of whatever description in the freezer, please just get over your aversion, shift paradigms and save the most valuable parts of that animal the ones that deliver the most nutritional punch to you. And that's the organ meat and the fat. If you throw those away or give them to your dog or let the you know, home kill butcher take them away, you're shooting yourself in the nutritional foot, if not in the nutritional head. Um, those are the most nutrient dense, mineral and digestive rich parts of the whole animal. This is nose to tail, but what they don't tell you is the parts you've been throwing away until now are actually the most valuable. So, you know, make pate, um, heart, if you don't overcook it, along with liver, is just amazingly tasty. Use more salt, um, freeze those things, make, grind it up and put it, make it into meatloaf if you have to, to disguise it, but eat the organ meat, eat the fat. That's what keeps cancer and heart disease at bay because we, it's been proven over and over again. No, proven is too strong a word. It has been um, the hypothesis that there is a link between fat consumption and heart disease has been disproven time and time again. Um, this whole this whole narrative that fat is to blame, we, we can trace the origin of that story back to the sugar industry paying off Harvard University to blame fats instead of sugars as a cause of heart disease. This has just come out in the last 
three or four years, people trolling through, you know, the history and the records of the funding. It, we just know that the whole thing has been created by a narrative to enhance the sales of sugar, of the sugar industry, of the carbohydrate industry, of the grain industry, all of which are concentrated in processed foods. Because that's a real profit center. The more processed the food, the more profit there is in it um, for the manufacturer. But the result is more ill health, which is okay from a business standpoint, because more ill health sells more pharmaceutical drugs. And more the fact that we're having the loop back to the soil is if you have, if you're processing already nutrient deficient and poisoned food from a conventional ag setting, that really doesn't matter that people are in ill health because then we can sell them more drugs. And it turns out that all three of those major corporate you know, industries are all interlocked. They all have you know, stock in each other's businesses. They all exchange CEOs. They're all part of a web, if you will, of um, economic, political interfaces, connections where <clears throat> along with the government, they're not really working to your benefit, they're working to their own profit, regardless of the morality of what they're doing. We just need to see through you know, that veil to realize that what we do as regenerative farmers, creating healthy, nutrient-dense food for people so that they can think accurately and actually see what's happening is absolutely crucial. And, and for that, they need to have regenerative health. And I guess the thing with, you know, regenerative is it's everything's on the cards. And we talked about the, and you talked about the grappling between like a cold turkey cut and like a, what I would call like a methadone program, you know, weaning someone off. And, and, and there is this dance between the two, depending on the individual for sure. But I guess the optimum thing, what you're, what you're pointing to here, and you alluded to at the beginning around responsibility, is it's like all the stuff's here available. And in some cases, there's a place for them. We're not saying throw it all out the kitchen window, but it's up to you to be responsible for what you take personally and what you apply to your farm. I think it's also very important to realize that there's another layer in here. Um, we all want to you know, have something we can trust in, somebody or something we can believe that we don't have to question. We don't have to dig down into it and you know, find out whether this is really true or is this ethical or what's actually in here. Can I trust this? So we assume that all of the things that we're allowed and have been allowed to put into our ag system, onto our farms, onto the food we're growing, um, have well and truly proven to be safe and effective. Safe and effective, you know, the, the buzzwords of the decade. The short answer is just as all of these chemical, pharmaceutical um, growing, you know, comp companies are um, interconnected. Um, 
they are interconnected with the regulatory agencies of the government. They, the interests of, for example, the ag chemical industry or the food industry is not in legislation, but certainly in action and orientation. The, it's the health of the ag chemical industry that is important to the Food and Drug Administration or to EPA or to any of those um, regulatory agencies. More, it's more important the industry health than it is our health. And yet their mandate is to regulate for our health. That does not happen. And you can jump up and down and anybody who wants to have a more detailed discussion about my assertion here, I welcome you to get in touch because I bore you to tears with my experience in government and the experience of my husband who did his PhD out of Washington DC on the politics of pesticide regulation in the United States. So I have horror stories you know, from the 50s and 60s that would curl your hair and they continue today unabated. The stuff you tell, we are told is safe and effective simply is not for the most part. Look at all the chemicals and all of the drugs that have been finally withdrawn from circulation after great efforts and jumping up and down by a lot of concerned scientists and people. But all the rest of the stuff is out there. The bottom line is if it kills something, it will damage our cells. That's just the way we have the same cells as the pesticides and the poisons we're applying to the environment or even to ourselves. We can't expect to get off scot-free because we're different, we're humans, we can think. BS, when it comes right down to it, our cells are the same. They will react the same. And and for those of you that haven't discovered, I'm I'm just, what you're saying is reminding me of Dr. John Lundgren and was one of the first Quorum Sense field days we had was actually hosting him. And it was just incredible to hear his journey of risk assessment on, you know, agricultural inputs for the USDA and then discovering actually that doesn't, he started to meet regenerative farmers and then discovered that these guys weren't needing those pesticides. And he, he jumps up and down and says, you know, we cannot know for certain. Risk assessment is just a guide and it's based on mortality of mostly insects. And we don't look at the, 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 the underlying microbial support of those insects. And he drew the link between neonics causing bee and monarch butterfly deaths. And the USDA said, no, 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 the science is gray on that. And of course, they were regulating neonicotinoids and he took them to the high court and won and then left and started his own company uh, not company but organization called ecdysis which is to shed one skin you know metamorphosis and does research on a farm completely free of string or conditional money so check it for those of you that are listening like what is this you know this can't, this can't be this can't be scientific Go and check out Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, as well as go and have a phone call with Phyllis. 
uh, if you want to hear those horror stories, or maybe just go to the Eek Dice's um, website on on the internet and check it out because there are lots of these people are not, you know, Phyllis, Dr. Lundgren. These are these are credible. You know, I didn't know Phyllis. Your your husband was a doctor. Mm-hmm. You can say that, eh? He's done a PhD. Is that correct? Yes. So just yeah. So Phyllis, I just I, I want to come to some kind of end point here, which is difficult because I feel we, we could talk all day, and I'm going to be responsible for people's attention. And uh, I I want to ask a different question to what I would normally ask, and because I think you'll handle it is what do you see the future of farmers as human beings on the land and the landscape itself as your life's work fulfilled? What I would like to see, to be able to look back, you know, from wherever I am in whatever state of consciousness or being in another 40 or 50 years, and see farmers resume their appropriate value in society. I would like them to be viewed as they are the doctors of the future, if you will. They are the medical system. They're not medical, but they are the health system. Not only the health of the animals and plants that they nurture, but of the humans that they feed, and more importantly, of the ecosystem as a whole, the landscape, the farm ecosystems, and all of the regional connections, that they are the the nurturers, they are the caregivers um, of that system overall. But they are in charge of the planetary health system, if you will. Which is completely distinct to the medical system. Correct. That's a system of dis-ease. We need to be proactive uh, with our health system, and that starts from the soil up. And farmers are the ones doing it, either for good or for eh, not so good. It's our choice. I will sign off, so to speak, with my very personal legacy aim, what I would like to see, to feel that I contributed to, um, knowing, I have to say this because I get some funny looks when I say this, knowing that physical beauty and intelligence are absolutely related to parental nutrition, okay? How we look, and whether or not we healthy, we're healthy, has only a very small amount to do with our genes, with our DNA, and everything to do with our nutrition. Okay? We form new genes from nutrition. We form our systems and our bodies from nutrition. So hence my fixation with saturated animal fat and the fat-soluble vitamins that it provides, which are absolutely crucial during pregnancy and for young children, press the rest of our lives, but crucial. So what I want to see is 
an agriculture that venerates animals, that, that venerates the, the fat and the high quality protein, but mostly the fat that we need to be in our right minds, in our paleolithic minds, with our bigger brains, because they were bigger back then, I want to be able to think that I've contributed in some way to every child being born beautiful, intelligent, and wanted. And I think when we can achieve that on a planetary basis, then we will well and truly have met our potential as humans. Thank you for the opportunity. Phyllis, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Oh, as a man, a father, and soon to be new baby due very soon, three months, I see the value and importance in our work. And people like you who empower us as farmers and fathers and mothers, thank you so much. My pleasure. Go, go and nurture those soils. <laughs>